Welcome to Rise Smile Films, the film review podcast that mixes cinema with fine spirits. Journey with us as we encounter new, old, and strange films with the occasional dabble into sports and music. Proceed with caution as these podcasts feature spoilers and some mature language. This is Matt. And this is Jesse. Today on tap, we have Mandy, starring Nicolas Cage, Andrea Riseborough, and Linus Rauch. Story by Panos Cosmatos, screenplay by Panos Cosmatos, and Aaron Stewart on, and directed by Panos Cosmatos. Welcome back to Rice Smile Films. It's time to finish up our Nicolas Cage cask uh, that was started with The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent. We did Leaving Las Vegas last week, and now we're wrapping up with a very different film from those two, yeah. from 2018, Mandy. So this is kind of like a sneaky film that kind of came out... Um, you know, later in, in Cage's career, but it kind of had some buzz about it just in that kind of revenge escapade of like, I want to say like a John Wick, but like that type of film, right? Like seeing an aged actor, like really go to like a dark place for, for, for someone he really cares about. So first time I saw it, I was just like, what is this? Mm-hmm. I want to ask you, cause you got to do this to me last week. Cause I was a virgin on uh, <laughs> leaving Las Vegas. Did that go about how you thought or? <laughs> no, I had no idea what I was in for mm-hmm. and it wasn't this. Yeah. No, I'm um, dumbfounded. <laughs> <laughs> you had some good comments throughout. Uh, just, just, well, I'll, I'll bring them up as we go along, but th- this should be a lot of fun to kind of dig into this plot of like what's going on here. But yeah. um, went and bought some new bottles yesterday. So this is Oregon spirit. I don't think we've ever had Oregon spirit before. So, this is just straight American bourbon whiskey, aged four years. So let's dive right into this. Definitely tobacco. As, mm-hmm. Tobacco is like a note. Like, what, what do you what do you kind of think of that? Like, I'm not a smoker. I'll I'll do a cigar on the off chance. But I'm I'm always been very fond of that flavor or that like aroma. That aroma. Yeah. Um, yeah. Prefer it in a pipe more. Sure. But yeah, no, I get that there too. Mm-hmm. It's nice. And then you nostalgic get, a bit. And then yeah, it, 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 you it, you remember the days of just like you'd go in and just people would just be smoking in a restaurant everywhere, everywhere, and mm-hmm. people's houses on a plane. Oof. And you would just you would get it on you. But you know, if you had grandparents or parents that smoked, it's kind of like it brings back memories, doesn't it? Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, but excellent. Let's let's not beat around the bush. Let's dive headfirst into this thing with our flight question. So kind of felt appropriate to talk about Nicolas Cage just a little bit more before we wrap up this this cask. So not in picking anything that we've talked about as the week's episode. Let's do our top three favorite Cage uh, films and just kind of digging into his filmography. I mean, we talked about it a lot in that first episode of just how all over the place it is. Animated films, superhero stuff, rot drama, comedy, ridiculous stuff. 120, 30 credits, I think, to his name. Wow. Like, a lot. A lot. Uh, straight to DVD stuff. <laughs> so, I'm curious to see what your top three is. And three, three, two, two, one, one. Yeah, let's do it. Okay, number three for me is Moonstruck. Mm. Traditional, but Nick Cage, uh, in his early part of his career, 
you can see where he's forming the chops to be the Nick Cage that I think we get in the latter part of his career mm-hmm. a lot. So I'm going to go with Moonstruck, pretty traditional, but that's what I'm going with. Um, great choice. I think I confess to you, too, uh, that I also haven't seen that movie. Uh, great choice. Thanks. So I think when we were talking about early on about um, Cage and the ties to the Copia line- lineage, and I was like, I would like to see him work with Coppola. And- he has, uh, or he's in in that kind of in that kind of space uh, with, um, I think Rumblefish. I think that's that Matt Dillon vehicle. Mm-hmm. So I'm going with another prestige filmmaker of that sort, Martin Scorsese, and bringing out the dead. Mm-hmm. Scorsese, uh, coupled with uh, Paul Schrader, the writer, they they churn out. I think they did Taxi Driver together. I think one other one I'm forgetting, but this one as well. So he's like a paramedic that is just burnt out at like has nothing left to give and is just seeing visages of like all the trauma he's seen throughout the years. Yeah. Kind of horror, like, uh, in, in a way, but you definitely get that bleary eyed cage, right? Yeah. Uh, so that's, that's my number three. Good choice. Mm-hmm. Number two for me is matchstick men. Uh, it's a con artist only to find out at the end that his daughters pulled off the biggest con on him in the whole story. Uh, that's a more understated cage role. Mm-hmm. Um, I just think it's really well-crafted, entertaining family drama film. Um, Ridley Scott, right? Yeah, that's that's number two for me. I really, really enjoy that film. It's been a long time since I've watched it, but I think I'm going to get back to it here in the next week and check it out again. I think I confess to you, too, I also haven't seen that movie, so maybe there's just notches missing in my Cage filmography yeah. for both of us, right? Yeah, for sure. Well, with 130 <laughs> titles, that's an impossible sure. you know filmography to meet. <laughs> yeah. Number two for me, this was a recent revisit, and I, I think I really just like this property. I'm going to go with Kick-Ass. Mm-hmm. Um, his role as Big Daddy, um, the the real father to to Hit Girl. And they're, they're a great combo, right? Oh, yeah. Uh, just kind of like that father-daughter relationship, and it's mostly it's, it's inappropriate in that she's acting like way beyond her years and is an efficient killing machine, and he's essentially pseudo-gun-toting Batman, right? Yep. And... He's really good in it, and mm-hmm. it's like he gets his moments to cage out and just do his thing. And I had never seen Kick Ass two. They're both on HBO Max right now, and I hadn't seen, never seen the second one. That one was pretty good too. So Matthew Vaughn and crew, I think that was a property that just didn't really stick its landing with audiences, and it's too bad because it's kind of a lot of fun. Yeah, that's a great series. I think Jim Carrey's in that second one is mm-hmm. Captain Freedom or something. Or yep. no, isn't Captain Freedom? That's Jesse Ventura and the Running Man, right? Something Freedom. Yeah, I've, it's been a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, we're getting down this Nicolas Cage rabbit hole about what I should revisit. Mm-hmm. Better set aside a couple months with all those films. Yeah, huh? Right. Number one, yeah. Wild at Heart. Uh, one we talked about on the podcast, I think we both really wanted to do, but we saved our audience from uh, the difficulties of trying to find it because it's just not accessible, which yeah. is so odd. Really odd, right? Um. I think somebody like David Lynch can tap into the good pieces of Nicolas Cage and highlight the weird that he's able to do mm-hmm. um, while not letting the weird take over the movie so much that it just becomes this sort of character of farce. That movie for me was, that was my entry point into anything by David Lynch, if you can believe really? that. That was my first one. Your entry Lynch. Yeah, which... I mine. think in all of them, that's a little bit more toned down than yeah. some of the other ones. But mine was Eraserhead. You, boy, <laughs> yeah. Um, I think him and Laura Dern are just really good together. They are. They are. Yeah. And uh, that uh, Willem Dafoe's really good in that movie for a little while. <laughs> for a little while. <laughs> I, 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 that was a really entertaining film. And that started me down a path of sometimes 
not being quite so afraid of obscure or odd. Mm -hmm. And I went through about a decade period where I couldn't get enough of that kind of stuff. Yeah. Brazil, those sort of things. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Just off the beaten, just very surreal type of, and this is strange, but I'm kind of digging it. Like, that's kind of my space right now. Mm -hmm. One of the reasons why I picked today's film. Mm. Great choice. Uh, yeah, that, that that needs to be on a more like Criterion release or on a some no streaming service, nowhere you can rent it. It's it's kind of frustrating. That's weird. Very strange. It's kind of like it's true romance by way of Lynch, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's great, great choice. My number one, uh, just another one, and just in the caginess, uh, this film's just been lauded and made fun of, but I, it's still a really good time. It's Face Off. Him with John Woo, and John Woo directs action in a very particular mm. type of way. And then you couple uh, Cage with arguably another just out-of-control actor sometimes, John Travolta. Yeah. And then they swap faces. Yeah. <laughs> Caster Troy, yeah, that's, that's Cage really going for it, right? Mm-hmm. But I think in an accessible action vehicle format that's part buddy movie, part uh, just... Gina Gershon's really good in that. Joan Allen as well. Uh, it's it's a wacky movie. Once you get past the they're switching faces, it's you can settle in for a nice action mid nineties action romp, right? Yeah, yeah. But it's not winning any awards. But I, I don't know if that was the parameters for my list, right? So it's your number one Nick Cage film of all time. Is I, it, no, you know, I'm be, leaving Las Vegas. I think is probably sneaking sneaking into there as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a fondness for for today's film, but I think yeah, I think that one's just. I remember seeing that like on HBO, like when it got released in like '98 on that Saturday night HBO release slot, and I sat down yeah. and watched it, and I was like, "This is a weird movie," but yeah, it's kind of, kind of, kind of a fun little vehicle. All right, on then Travolta, good choice. Travolta had like a weird kind of like resurgence around that time too, because he did like Broken Arrow with Christian Slater, mm-hmm. and then Con Air. It's like they, it's like Face Off spawned like imitators of its own right too mm-hmm. with those two guys. That's fair to say. And then they both burned out at the same time, right? I think the one that really killed, I mean, we can do Battlefield Earth, but I think even before that one finished off Travolta, the one that did him in was Michael. Michael. Man, that is a bad film, dude. The Angel? That's a bad film. For all the things that we could say about Battlefield Earth, I think Michael in some ways might be worse. That's a terrible film. picture him in that movie. Jesus. That hair, that like... 90s Superman hair, right? Yeah. <laughs> Jeez. Bad film. Great choice. Let us know uh, your favorite Nick Cage rules. You can hit us up on Productions at gmail.com. That's the general email or on any of our social media platforms. Because people like National Treasure. That's not my cup of tea, but I know people were really fond of that series. Uh, Gone in 60 Seconds. Oh, yeah. That, there's that one, too. Like Trapped in Paradise, mm-hmm. <laughs> which was that Dana Carvey and John Lovett. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's a strange movie. Uh, yeah, he's got, he's got, take your pick, right? Yeah, take your pick. There's plenty of weird in there. Not as weird as this one, though. Well, here we go. We're diving right into our review breakdown of Mandy. Dad came walking across with a pillowcase and a crowbar. And there was something, you know, moving around inside of the pillowcase, like squirming around. And he said, we should gather around. He had something to show us, and so we all gathered around. And he emptied what was in the pillowcase on the ground. And it was a... It was a bunch of baby starlings. And he told us that he was going to show us how to kill them. 
Kind of a brutal story, right? You know what that scene reminds me of? We'll get to it. It's like maybe like 15, 20 minutes in. It reminded me of Clarice's story about the lambs screaming, mm-hmm. right? Yep. Childhood trauma surrounded around animals or the death of an- animals and almost a little too young to process something like that. And it sets you on your way. Does it set her on her way as this very grim, morose character that we see here in the rest of the film? Or is that some thematic metaphor to what's about to happen in the film? Because, ooh, well put. Is it though? I mean, does, is, is, who's the starlings? Who's the, is he? Yeah, it could be, it could be her. The, yeah. You see, yeah, there is a lot of metaphor that you can kind of weed through here, but I do have a question for you just kind of right off, off the bat. Yeah. So we've had this conversation a lot on the podcast about the title of the film. Uh, I'm glad you brought it up because I want to talk about it. Yeah. So title of the film's Mandy. Mm-hmm. Uh, the titular man, she was the one speaking there. How do you think she fits into this film and weaves her way into that? If it's about her in kind of that estimation. Well, oddly, when you title a film, like after one of the characters, it ends up being character study. Mm -hmm. And I would say for the first third of the film, it really is her movie. Don't you kind of forget at some points, they're like, this is still a Nicolas Cage vehicle, right? (laughs) Because he's gone for quite some time. Mm -hmm. Um, The general premise here is these two, Nicolas Cage and Mandy, what is his character's name in this, by the way? Red. Red? Red Miller, yeah. Red and Mandy are in love with each other in this very quiet, lethargic, comfortable Mm -hmm. relationship. Yeah. And I think the Mandy character is rather nondescript with the exception of Mm -hmm. the hair metal shirts that she chooses to wear. I think Mm -hmm. we see her in, well, maybe not hair metal. That's probably like Black Sabbath and Motley Crue, but that's early Motley Crue. That's Mm -hmm. like Shadow of the Devil Motley Crue. Yeah. And the interesting selection of books that she reads that tend to lean toward fantasy. And I might even say pushing the, it's not, but pushing the Scientology envelope. Like there's fantasy that's like the Hobbit, like Tolkien Mm -hmm. and C.S. Lewis. And then there's whatever the hell she's reading. Then there's like something in the middle and then there's what she's at. Right. It's weird. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, I think that book is called the seeker of the serpent's eye. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, There you go. (laughs) Um, so I'll be really honest with you. One of the things that always leaves me really uncomfortable in film mm-hmm. is the obfuscation of religion. Yeah. It's off-putting and not in a bad way, but it, it leaves me uh, uncomfortable. And this movie really does toe the line, especially through the Mandy character of reality and non-reality, what's real and what is surreal. Mm-hmm. And, the whole relationship prior to when we get to um, what's the the main conflict in the story is so particularly odd and uncomfortable. They're about the only two I think that could survive in it. Sure. Yeah. And there's that really crazy scene with her. Um, I think they go out to the lake mm-hmm. and they have a bonfire. Oh, and she comes out of the water. She's coming out of the water and she has that. That's really the first time I noticed that scar that she had under her left mm-hmm. eye. Mm-hmm. And I thought to myself, did something happen to her in the water? Did something attack her? Did something bite her? Did something I think she has her? a glass eye. Yeah, odd looking. Mm-hmm. Might might be. You know, you almost wonder, did she get a crowbar herself? Mm-hmm. I don't know. 
but he's staring at her through these eyes that are just filled with adoration. And we are introduced into for a long winded soliloquy that didn't even get to, I think the answer of the question that you asked a weird relationship. Sure. And in a, in a way I want to use the word, it's kind of sweet between the two of them. Mm. They get each other on a level that we would never understand. Yeah. And they're cute. She's able to tell her this, tell him this awful story about beating these baby birds into the pavement mm -hmm. uh, that her dad did. And, he consoles her and they have interesting conversation about what's your favorite planet. And he's like, Oh, I like Galactus. <laughs> he's the devourer of planets. Mm -hmm. It can only work on their level. Right. Yeah. But I find that oddly appealing and sweet to observe. Okay. I think we would pursue relationships in other facets and we like other things, but it's nice to get a snapshot of what makes these two people into each other. So I'm I'm kind of willing to go with, go go with it here in, in this kind of early early go while we're getting to know them and their rigmarole and, and whatnot and he's a logger uh, by day lumberjack um, and I think there's some just subtle nods to him not being what is the term on the wagon is when you're sober yeah on the wagon I mean I think his is one employee tries to pass him beer and he he denies it and I think there's an off just remark about him not having having drank in in a really long time. Um, so they're living this, yeah, really quiet, secluded life. Like, could you ever, have you ever yearned for mountain life like, like that? Too quiet? Too quiet for me. Too quiet, too cold, too sequestered. Change that for something coastal, like a beach and mm -hmm. you've got a story, but no, no yeah. mountains for me. Yeah. Nope. Too many bears and <laughs> it's cold. There's times when, and the, the shadow mountains are, these are real, uh, it's a real mountain range in uh, Eastern California, kind of close to the Mo Mojave, and yeah, it looks appealing. It looks because I, I I'm I'm kind of a quiet person, you know. I like kind of like a little bit of solace, and some of this does look appealing. But then you're you're right. You're in the middle of nowhere, lack of resources, lack of help uh, when you really need it, and and in this film in particular, there's some weird shit out in the mountains, right? <laughs> Boy, yeah, and how. Okay, let's talk about yeah, this kind of bastardization of religion because I think I'm with you. I think that's why The Exorcist is so effective. I think that's why you really like that original Wicker Man film. Yeah. Something about how we perceive religion, both of us growing up Catholic, mm -hmm. having that very prim, proper, structured church service yeah. that's by the book, right? Yeah. And when you see it in film or you read about like Jim Jones or Heaven's Gate, you're just like, what were these people thinking? Yeah. And you know, I get a little wigged out about that too with like, this isn't the pulpit of Jesse's soapbox of religious integrity, but like, man, Joel Osteen gives me those vibes too, man. Yes. Like some of those guys, like, I'm like, what are you preaching? And like, what are your like millions of followers think? Like that kind of wigs me out a little bit. It's kind of scary mm -hmm. in a way that isn't threatening. It's just, I, I wish I could put my finger on it. And I found myself thinking about this a lot in the film. Like, why is this so troublesome to me? Even now, after all these years, I still can't tell you. Mm -hmm. I know why the exorcist is. Yeah. But this is far from that. It's just, is it worry that if you're brought up in a very Catholic upbringing and you do some of those very non-Catholic things in regards to the sacred pieces of the religion, you're going to pay? I mean, maybe it's just worry and fear. Mm -hmm. I shouldn't be watching this even still now at this point in my life. And that's how I was with The Exorcist, so maybe it's still there. I, I can't quite put my finger on it. But when we meet this, this traveling cult, 
Boy, it's a big old healthy spoonful of that, isn't it? Oh, I love how they're introduced. I mean, so kind of the just the gist of this film, the tone, the look, the feel, the vibe, it's all very slowed down. It's dreamlike. It's maybe nightmarish at, at, at most parts, but she's walking down this pathway. It's all red, and, and she's walking to work in, in the forest here, and this van comes up really slowly, and they really take their time with it. They show each member of this traveling circus they don't look right, right? No. They, 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 I made a comment about that one guy. I was like, this guy looks like he would be in one of these things. And then the the leader, Jeremiah, as he like pulls his uh, glasses off and sees Mandy walking down the street. And there's a connection, at least a one-way connection, right? Mm-hmm. I must have this woman. And I, whatever they did with the camera where it's like superimposed and he sees it like flash back a few times and then they like freeze on her face was very chilling to me the first time I saw it. I think it's a lot to do with her face and how striking that is just as it is in real life. Mm-hmm. Um, but that image that they're leaving you with and the transfiction that that character is going to go through. What is How far is he willing to go to, in his words later, get what's mine? Yeah. What I deserve to have. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> Divine right, right? Because that's what God told him he could have. Yes. Yeah, that's a pretty chilling sequence. The people in that traveling bus that are with him are not healthy you can tell Mm -hmm. and what's also kind of appropriate and made me think like maybe he has a shot with mandy is she's almost weird enough to fit in with that crew no exactly the stuff she reads yeah she and we talked about this off mic but andrea roseborough Mm -hmm. who we last saw in possessor and last spoke about in possessor is when done up a nice a nice looking gal Mm -hmm. When she's not, there's a Tilda Swinton effect there. And I think Tilda Swinton's a weird-looking chick Mm -hmm. or woman. Well, Andrea Riseborough, in regards to the way she is perceived by this religious religious cult, um, Children of the New Dawn. Yeah. (laughs) I think that's what they're called, right? Mm -hmm. Big title card. Yeah. You can't miss it. Can't miss it. She would be someone I could see right in there. And if you compare her Mm -hmm. to the mistress that I suppose he's already taken, not the older gal, but the younger one, Laura, maybe? Do you think she was pregnant? Yes. She looked looked like she had a bump. Yes. Yeah. Um, Man, they're sort of similar Mm -hmm. in structure and how fine they are. But there is a very clear drawing to another thing that I find to be really, really terrifying, and that's the Manson cult. Mm-hmm. The women in the Manson cult. What yeah. is it? What was this cult called? Um, the family, right? Is it called the family? The Manson family, yeah. I just, yeah, it seems like she's really a prime candidate to be the next member of this yeah. very odd grouping of people that are based on whatever secular beliefs, non-secular beliefs. Well, there's, 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 a, there's, a, there's a weird uh, sexual power play at, because at, this old this old biddy, mm. she's like, as we find out later, she's the most sensitive <laughs> and knows her lover's movements and knows how to please him in the best way that any woman ever could. Oh, yeah, yeah. But she's also, according to Jeremiah, she doesn't use her brain. <laughs> right. So it's like he's trading up to, for youth and then vibrancy. And then now that he's knocked up this other follower, he needs almost a replacement, right? Yeah. He's looking for a new mate. Mm-hmm. So is this his kind of goal is a mate searching, right? Mm. Survival of the, of, of the fittest here. And the, 
someone like that, like a Jim Jones <clears throat> or the, the this guy Jeremiah Sand, mm. the fact that he has he has that belief in his head that yeah, I deserve that, and I'm gonna do whatever I can to get it. And I think that's the part that freaks me out. Yeah, and that he's got some a cadre of weird people around him that are like, yeah, I believe that too. Damn, <laughs> damn is right. So I gotta I gotta say this. Uh, that I'll I'll play the little clip. You know your movie's taking a turn. I, I should have done this at this moment and just kind of just did a check in with you and see see how you how you were, kind of what you thought. But the moment your film says the words "the horn of Abraxas," you know you're going into mm. <laughs> some strange territory. Okay, so he goes to his brother, 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 uh, brother Snow, brother Jer- Jeremiah. It's, it's, uh, hang on, I gotta get, I gotta get this, this right. Brother Swan, his kind of like lieutenant, right? Mm-hmm. His Tom Hagen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and he's like, I need this woman, and you almost kind of think he's paralyzed because he's just laying in this bed can't move and we saw him laying in the the van so like can this guy do anything for himself or mm. they just bring the women to lay them on top of him mm. uh and they do all the work go find me this woman and he's like do you have the horn of abraxas go use it and so they go out into the middle of the woods he goes and blows this orcarina <laughs> yeah and they wait for a couple minutes and then i can't we can't make this up if you haven't seen this movie that's just this is gonna sound so strange to you, the road we're about to go down this demon biker gang shows up. This LSD biker gang. Uh, it's like Slipknot. Uh, it may as well be the Cenobites from Hellraiser, right? Yeah, mixed with a touch of uh, Road Warrior. Mm, yeah, yeah, with uh, the utilitarian vehicles. What? <laughs> what is right? Where are we going? And like, this is like when we're going into like some deep dark horror territory, but then we're also trying to figure out. Where's our grounding? Like, are we still in reality? Like, what's going on here? And the film doesn't paint that picture. To me, to the viewer, this is some weird stuff. Yeah. Later, we're going to find out that these guys were drug couriers that screwed up their job and their chemist placed them some bad batch LSD and they went nuts, yep. right? Yep. And they just spend their time roaming the the hillside causing chaos, mm-hmm. but they're the, the muscle, right? That's kind of how they decide to use them. They're the seek and destroy method for this cult. And these guys are scared to even go up and, and, and touch them. Yep. Or talk to them. Matt, what'd you think of this? <laughs> what'd you just think of like when it gets here, what's just, what's your thought? What's going through your head? Initially it was come on. Yeah. But the come on quickly went away to, wow, they're really doing this. And then when those three get into the mission per se. Mm-hmm. And we see them treat Jeremiah's acolytes the way they do. I, I was, like I said, dumbfounded that they were really choosing to double down and go all the way with this sort of supernatural element with this group that is the gimp meets the road warriors meets the Cenobites mm-hmm. to go attain this woman. Yeah. And for as much as my uh, come on at first was a, a negative feeling, I think it went away because I was just 
really uncomfortable waiting to see exactly how that abduction was going to look. Yeah. I expected them to do really, really terrible things. And that's not to say that they don't, but the abduction actually to keep me out of what I expected and what I was watching, which is kind of a consistent theme in the film for me Mm -hmm. is rather gentle. Yeah. Isn't it? I think I'm appreciative that it's rather yeah, gentle. I don't, I don't know because the scene you're alluding to later is, I think, fairly hard to watch, and especially from Cage's perspective. Any more on top of that, I don't know. I probably would have just checked out myself. Like, There's a tolerance level that I'm willing to go towards, and I didn't want this film to just go past that. You know what I mean? So, yeah, yeah I'm kind of no, with right. you. The first time I saw it, I'm like, wow, what, what kind of film is this turning into? And what are those guys capable of? Mm-hmm. And it just looks like they just want their LSD and they want their blood for blood and they're gone. Right. Mm-hmm. So they're like a bartering chip, but I kind of see them as the seek out. They, they gotta, they gotta peruse the shadow mountains to find red and um, Mandy's mm-hmm. place. And in a very twin peaks strobe oh, light yeah. abduction, oh, right? Yeah. <laughs> they're, they're abducted, knocked out. And you know, when they come to Mandy's here in the kitchen with the two gals, and this was crazy too. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's a chemist we meet later and he's providing the region with a large amount of hallucinogenics and psychedelics to the biker gang, to this cult um, that he's made a compound for just this purpose. I guess the initiation of new blood. Seems like it. <clears throat> I'm weird with eyes, Matt. Like I, I can't even put eye drops in my own eyes. Mm. Like I can't do it. I'm glad I don't wear contacts because I don't even know how would, I would get them in. Yeah. So them going and putting whatever hallucinogenic into her eyes. Okay, that's enough, right? Yeah. Then they go whip out a tarantula hawk wasp out of some resin uh, and uh, have it sting her in the neck. So now she's tripping from whatever this chemist made them and from the venom effects of this wasp. Oh, my gosh. Yep. I kind of feel bad for Mandy. That's fairly torturous in its own right. Yes. Uh, so when she comes down the hallway and the audience is fully feeling the effects of what Mandy's going through, she's moving this and then like the, the colors of her visage are moving that way. This is a scene, right? This is 10-ish minutes of Looney Tunes territory. During this period of the film, did you ever find yourself thinking about Texas Chainsaw? Oh, a little bit when she's at the table with the fam? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I kept thinking, boy, Toby Hooper would sure be jealous right now because this guy took what he did and somehow made it even more weird. More Um, strange, yeah, more. What's funny in this scene is essentially what Jeremiah is trying to pull off is a seduction scene that isn't quite (laughs) all that uncommon for, I think, a lot of the way seductions might be carried out. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about this, right? So sit down at the table pseudo meal that's where you have the meal then you go back and you turn on some music which he compares his own lp to the carpenters Mm -hmm. it's not (laughs) because he said the carpenters are fantastic but this is even better and then he plays his own music and if you include a meal and then back to my place and music and a drink to maybe loosen Mm -hmm. the edges like i i'm not saying that's what i did but that's a fairly common yeah that's puzzle piece that gets put in the final piece the, the final masterpiece of seduction so yeah. he's trying to do what's kind of a normal thing with willing parties yeah it's just so weird yeah his first red flag is his whatever priest bathrobe he's wearing with the shoulder pads right 
Yeah. I mean, he looks like he's like out of sticks. <laughs> Dennis DeYoung. And looking like Mr. looking Roboto. like Edgar Winter, man. Yeah, for oh, sure. Jeez. Frankenstein. So, so he goes and puts on this uh, LP that's him. Mm-hmm. And I made a nice joke to you. I can poke fun at the music that I like sometimes. I'm a huge <laughs> Moody Blues fan. Love their music. I love how conceptual they are. But when this guy puts on this tune, it's like knockoff D-list moody blues, mm-hmm. and it's so pathetic. Terrible. Like, I, I, I knew you were going to love like just how awful it sounds. It's terrible. <laughs> and then he gets up, and he starts going through this litany of prophet-like iterations. Well, how it bro- broke down was he sought a career in music. Yeah. They all laughed at him, and and they and he says they couldn't uh, recognize my genius, my genius, the golden genius sheen uh, radiating radiating off of me. But then I found a different purpose. Mm-hmm. Something else spoke to me, and it's this religion, right? At some point in that ten minute bit that he's laying on her, I kind of stopped paying attention because one of the things that was challenging in this scene was there are so many things going on because you're getting at a lot of from her POV. Mm-hmm. So it's very hallucinogenic and there's trails and the coloring's weird and the, the voices are echoing. Mm-hmm. So you're tripping with her as you're listening to what he's saying. And it took me out of exactly what he was. I got enough of it to sort of get, I'm a failed musician. And mm-hmm. then I turned over to this religious cult. Yeah. And I don't know if it matters because I think if you're trying to make me feel like I am her in that scene, that's probably about as much of it as she could comprehend too. Oh, absolutely. Because yeah. you're just, it's just, you're just spinning and tripping. It's like Charlie Brown uh, adults talking, right? Yeah. yeah. Yep. So the only way to get that back on the rails would be to do something even more weird than what we've already experienced. And here we go. What did you think real quick before we get to that moment? Mm-hmm. This is pretty good. Yeah. Uh, when he deadpan fourth wall break into the camera, but he's looking into Mandy's eyes and he's talking for yeah, about a minute and a half. And then her like face like goes yeah, into, into him. That was weird. That, that Persona was, by Bergman. And it, it looked really good. Like it looked like a different human. Yeah. Like it looked like a melding of the, of the two faces, like really seamless. That was, that was, that was wild. And then like above him, when he's standing, there's the, the wood spires of their like found uh, roof foundation are like almost doing this like halo esque effect of like radiance from his head. Very like when you see pictures of Jesus or saints, like they have this radiating effect out of their head. Mm-hmm. Couldn't have been intentional or it had to be intentional, right? For sure. Just a design choice. Yeah. But then we get this moment, right? So he's, I, at this point, I guess he's decided the seduction is going amazingly right he's laid his rap on as good as he could possibly do it so what's the next it's step disrobe right strip oh my god and so is this richard break is that that actor no no this is linus rouch uh the only other film i've seen him in was he played thomas wayne in batman begins oh yeah oh yeah that is him you're right mm-hmm. so linus rouch opens up his robe and it's probably three minutes of full him. frontal him <laughs> And I just thought, wow, this is really not going away from that. And then he gives her a line like, be gentle like I'm going to be with you and some other sort of sexual talk. And we get the big moment because even with all the drugs she's got, we get this. (laughs) 
Okay, so big question. The, what brings her back into coherence is she says, this is you you playing, this, and this is a song about you. So it's even that vein, right? And then she just starts giggling hysterically. But is she laughing at his manhood right now? It's double rejection. Not yeah. only is she making fun of his music the way that people couldn't recognize his genius, but then the other thing that he thinks he's endowed with, which is the Golden Johnson from above. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she's laughing at him, <sighs> mocking him. And how could you not? Yeah. The cheese dick, right? I mean, cheese dick. This guy is just radiating bullshit. Yeah. And you can just you can just feel it the, the second he starts talking. And the other thing about him, there's nothing about Linus Rouch that is in good shape. He's got that yes. little fat pouch above that's just he just looks sad with his little wilted winky mm-hmm. and his little <laughs> poncha stomach it just if you wouldn't if you weren't going to cry or shriek in horror you probably would laugh yeah but that's a big diss because mandy yeah is as high as they come right now mm-hmm. and for her even in that state to to mock him and laugh like that it's a no-go right well unfortunately for her it's a you know a no-go well and he tries to masturbate really quickly and i don't think he's got nothing to work with at, at that point right it's just like a dead fish so he's just trying to sol- uh, salvage any type of manhood that he can in this moment and then her laugh turns like from calm maniacal to almost ghoulish by way of the effects of the sound and everything really kind of horrific and then he goes and talks to the mirror and he's like what do i do what do i what do i, what do, I do and he's crying and his mascara's running <laughs> So ridiculous and is like don't let anyone ever talk down to you or mock you or think they're better than you or yeah it's kind of the gist it's kind of the gist yeah right is the gist of his mirror conversation so yeah. it's like well i know what i'm gonna do cut back to nicholas cage remember this is a nicholas cage cask vehicle um and they got him tied up with barbed wire by the mouth and the wrists out there and they're like yeah you and your whore i think you're so special and living some great solace life out here we're gonna show you guys and the other Lynchian thing that I think keeps popping up is anytime there's like this like otherworldly instrument like the horn of Abraxas or this death blade that they're gonna stab him with is there's this flashing like green light that's on it. <laughs> it's right out of Twin Peaks. It is <laughs> something out of Twin Peaks. And they give it to him pretty good here. I mean, they stab him right in the in the gut, and this getup that he's in doesn't looks like the worst, right? Mm-hmm. And they're gonna make him observe quite possibly maybe the worst thing that you could ever watch in that moment is the death of a loved one right yep what you kind of think of just the the playing out of this and it's all shot very artistically and slow-mo and lots of colors at this point um but i thought they did something fairly interesting so they get mandy mandy in this sleeping bag and they prop her up on this swing set and then they gasoline they light her on fire and Cage just has to watch, and it's just like his emotions going from fright to sadness to just anger, just in his in his look, right? They they did a cool thing where they they showed each member of this cult's reaction to the burning sleeping bag, and I thought everyone reacted character wise appropriately. Yep, the guy with the thing was like licking his teeth, whatever the hell that means. That weird guy I was talking about is like shooting like gun sidearm. The pregnant woman almost seems remorseful, right? Mm-hmm. Like, why did we do this? And she almost, she looks away. I think she looks down. The sensitive old biddy <laughs> is like, she, she she likes this too. Like, mm-hmm. she's very much a part of this. And then Jeremiah almost goes from like, yeah, I showed her to like, almost of like a regret, right? Yeah. There's like a, like this 
solemn look that goes across his face. And maybe it's because he couldn't attain the attainable mm. in his eyes. Mm. Admitting defeat. I kept expecting that when we really found out who was in the sleeping bag later on, that it was going to be the sixth member of their little cult, that pudgy blonde headed guy. Cause they do talk about sacrificing him. Well, he got taken by the, the bikers. Yeah. But I thought when that was going to break out that I kept waiting for there to be the twist at the end, which was he finds Mandy. And in mm. fact, it wasn't Mandy that they burned. It was that other guy. Mm. And he's been chumped along this whole time. She's always been part of this. And Oh, interesting. Because she, she seemed like she, I was certain she was going to join that cult with mm. the shit she was reading and the way she looked. She looks like she's, she should be part of it. So uh, that's not going to come everybody, not a spoiler alert, but that's not the movie. Um, not that it works poorer or better in, in my version. I just, I kept expecting there to be that twist, but nope, it's not the twist. It really is her. And we watch the final embers die out as we see the fire of revenge and anger and sadness rage inside a cage. Mm -hmm. Um, and then what's really odd is after they're finished burning her, they just hop in their vehicles and leave. They yeah. just leave him sort of lynched up there. Uh, he has taken... It almost kind of looks like no big deal, right? They leave yeah. like just as they came, and it's like, yeah, we didn't just burn a human alive over here and torture this other one. Seem to do that a lot, leave wreckage in their in their past, whether mm -hmm. it's them or the biker gang. And I, I kind of thought he was going to bleed out because he does take a pretty hearty stab with their whatever relic that's used for sacrificial slayings. Whatever and, they found digging in the middle of the mountains, right? Yeah. Garden tool that they <clears throat> shove right into his rib cage. Um, and we fade out and then we fade back in, right? Personally, I probably, I probably would bleed out. I like, yeah, I, don't, I think everyone survival would. wise. I, I don't know how I could get out of this because the first thing he's got to do is free his hands from this barbed wire trap and his, his wrists are fucked. <laughs> like, right. Yeah. This is all chewed up and, Kind of Christ-like, right? Yes. I mean, clearly. The, the 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 injuries are very the the, the stabbing in the mm -hmm. ribs, right? Yep. The spear of destiny. Yeah. So Nicholas Cage is going to become this Jesus figure of mm -hmm. if Jesus wanted to be sore about being crucified, right? He would go the route of Red Miller. <laughs> right. You, you, well said. Yes. Ah, uh, yeah. I thought that was fairly troubling to watch too. So I mean, you're really getting it in this part of the film. People is the the burning of his loved one, which is it's. it's done in such a way that's just it's off-putting but it's like it's done beautifully as well that's, that's weird to say but like that's just how the filmmakers did it and then when he gets off of this thing and in his tidy whities like crawls up to his wife and she looks like pompeii right i mean like i think the wind blows away the last visages of her skull dust and that's it that's that's what's left of her and so i really like he goes back into the house and almost in a moment of necessary levity. We've got to talk about this in his tidy whities He's bleeding all over the place. He picks up his favorite shirt and just kind of clutches it close. And I think she used to wear it around the house, kind of like a boyfriend shirt. Right. Yeah. And this commercial on the TV of cheddar goblins. And it's this knockoff craft Mac, Mac and cheese of this goblin that is puking Mac and cheese on these kids. Yeah. The cheesiest. The cheesiest mac and cheese on the market, yes. Cheddar Goblins. And the commercial is so grotesque. Mm -hmm. And then he just was looking at it and it was like, Cheddar Goblins. And then goes and claps on his bed. Almost like he's in such shock, right? Of what he's just witnessed that he just kind of zones out into the TV here and he's like, yeah, whatever. And then passes out. And as the audience, we almost kind of need that little ridiculous, what, whatever that is. 
just to kind of cut this tension because if we're just going hard 24-7 without some levity, we, we need a little of that. I guess this is time-wise probably the midpoint in the film. It is the midpoint, yep. Uh, at this point in the movie for myself, I went to that place that was, what in the hell is this? That might have been time when I leaned over and said, what exactly are we doing here? What mm-hmm. are you making me watch? Yeah. Um, that might have been before, but that if that was earlier, the sentiment had been uh, doubled down on. And at that point, I guess you get the plan, which is I'm going to take some revenge and go make these bastards pay. So this turns now into Last House on the Left. Mm, yeah. With a touch of the animated pieces of heavy metal mm. and oh, well said. the vocal or the um, musical stylings of Possessor. It did, it, this reminded me of Possessor. Yeah, okay. With the lighting and directorial flair of David Lynch. Nice. You put all of that together and we're headed for a really rocky, interesting, obscure, unique second half of the film. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the, the vibe I, I got the first time watching this was there's this whole kind of maybe here on Rye Nation right now, Rye proper. I think there's time to like call like a new subgenre of horror and I call it retro horror, something that's set in a bygone time that's inspired by other genres and it's kind of piecemealed to be its own thing. So something like It Follows, I think, feels a little retro horror to me. Yeah. Um, something like there's a film, it was a Spanish film I watched not too long ago. It was called The Last Matinee, and it was a Spanish interpretation of a giallo, like an Argento film, down to the score and the colors and everything. So it's something people toy with. And even, I'll say this too briefly, Stranger Things kind of fits that mold in like a Spielbergian yeah. cute way. Well said. Yes, spot on. This yep. is not Stranger Things at all. This is a very different kind of dark territory. But I kind of got a hammer horror vibe off of like the titles and the mm-hmm. way the film starts and just kind of the, the the whole look of it all. But we get this moment here. Um, I think we've had one in, in each film except the first one or the unbearable weight, which is where we needed it, right? Yeah. We get the cage moment. So Red's going through a lot right now. If this theory that I have that he was on the wagon and he has this secret vodka bottle hidden in the bathroom for when I jump off, right? Yeah. Now would be a moment to jump off. Sure. What the hell? So he gets this bottle and he's just down in it. He's pouring it on his wounds. And I want your opinion on this. You think he's trying to kill himself? Like if you're drinking, I mean... And leaving Las Vegas, it took a lot to kill himself. But the way he's just kind of down in this vodka, I mean, it's almost like he's just trying to drown out all the pain and everything, like, right here and there. Yes, that's what I think. I don't think he's trying to kill himself. Okay. I, I think he's he's making the decision to full-on seek revenge for what happened to Mandy, but he's got to, like you said, heal a little bit before. And the Nick Cage, the red that we saw prior to this that comes home and tells jokes about Galactus being his favorite planet mm-hmm. and watches some... 
you know, silly science fiction movie as they eat a TV dinner together. Yeah. He's got to bury that guy. So, you know, we talk about in, in film a lot, that moment when the main character dies and is reborn. And off the time it happens, oftentimes it happens with the use of water. Mm-hmm. It's almost a baptismal or yep. being born again hard. Yeah. If you like that, then I think this really works here because he pours it on himself. He pours it on his soul. Mm-hmm. And we're being born again hard yeah. in this, uh, Ooh, well this baptismal of vodka. Yeah. It would be vodka and Nick Cage, right? Yeah. Uh, I, I love how he does it, too. I mean, that, that scream, it's just, it's classic him. Mm-hmm. That may as well be in The Wicker Man. Yeah. And it goes from anger to sadness, back to anger, and then when that scene wraps up, it's fury in his eyes. Mm-hmm. And I think he's accepted, I'm going to get these bastards, right? Yeah, yeah. Right. It's like the call to action moment. But before he does, he's got to arm himself first. So we kind of get like the armament scene. And so then he goes and talks to, again, another kind of interesting thing, Bill Duke. When's the last time we saw Bill Duke? Predator? <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, I think he was in one of the X-Men films. I, it just, like, from what we've seen him in, but... He's kind of like just like a, a a mountain buddy of Reds, and he's coming for the Reaper, which is this bow and arrow type of setup. And he gets a little bit more about uh, the what's roaming the mountainside. Biker gang, black bikes, only seen at night. Weird shit. There's stories that there was a chapter. That ran courier for a manufacturer of LSD. He took a disliking to them and cooked them up a special batch. And they have never been right in the head since. I've seen them once from a distance. But your hunting is rabid animals. And you should go in knowing that your odds ain't that good. And you will probably die. Don't be negative. Last I heard on the CB, they were spotted down near Spirit River. When I seen them things, they were in a world of pain. But you know what the freakiest part was? What's that? They fucking loved it. When I'm hearing that, I'm probably like, yeah, maybe I'll think twice about this revenge tour, right? But it's more fuel to the fire for him. These guys claim to be as messed up as they are. They're going to see me messed up coming after them. And I like how you mentioned the baptismal rebirth through vodka and anger and acceptance. Because in some of these films, I always think of the schmelting scene as also a part of the rebirth. So after this, he goes to, I guess, his backdoor smelting shed. <laughs> I guess so. Because he's got to make himself a weapon. If I'm dealing with evil that you're talking about, that's still fantastical. But Bill Duke just said it, it's fairly realistic. Like what these guys, these guys are just messed up. Mm-hmm. They're on bad LSD. Um, I need a superior weapon to fight ultimate evil with, right? I mean, this is Tony Stark building the first iron suit, right? This right. is... Uh, you know, Aragorn getting his sword in Return of the King. And I had another example for it, and I can't believe I forgot it, of just someone fastening a weapon to go do battle with with evil with. 
This is part of like becoming the hero, dare I say. <laughs> Thor getting his new hammer and in game. Sure. Oh yeah, Stormbreaker. Yeah. Yeah. That's that. It's quite an axe he builds. And he's quite the blacksmith because he knows how to temper it and forge it and the whole nine. But by the time it's done, he's got this silver axe that has five or six different attack points. Yep. And uh, it looks like it could probably do the job. I think he's armed himself where well if he has the, the crossbow. And then that. And now this, he's got at least a fighting chance. Mm-hmm. And then we get the title card, Mandy. Mandy. <laughs> so I want to ask you once again, is this still a movie about Mandy? What I would say is not in the traditional sense, right? Yeah. Not because she's not an active participant, but the film is still about her at this point. Yeah. Revenge in her honor. Okay. So I guess that's that's what I'm going with with that. I'll ride with that. Okay. So we got to go after these crazy bikers first, and you know he gets one with, with the bow and arrow, and then I think rightfully so thinks he can go run this thing over, but man, it just wrecks his vehicle, right? And then, so then he ends up in the den with the beasts and he get every, this first one is like, uh, this one looks like the Cenobite. It's he's, he's slimy and gross and they nailed him to the floor. He beats him with a pipe and throws him over the edge here. Goes into the living room and this other guy's watching porn. Oh my God. And he's like wearing like the John Doe, like knife dildo. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I don't know what that guy's into with some dark stuff. And they get into some crazy fisticuffs, and he's he's sniffing a mountain of cocaine there, and he's got to go fight this other one after he dispatches that one. I mean, we get some pretty decent little action, this little whatever Shantate drugged in this place is. Yeah. Uh, cesspool. This crazy and Cage is going, he's like, you stole me, you tore my shirt. <laughs> you ruined my shirt. You, st- you tore my shirt. And, and you had a great moment here. This is like, it was kind of some nice levity because like this, this, the film's grim, people. After he dispatches these three guys in the house here, and he he goes to to the cocaine table himself, and just takes a takes a big whiff, and you and you go, why not? <laughs> yeah, why not? Why not? <laughs> I mean, like you, at this point, you're like in like a death battle with biker demon gang, and they burned your girlfriend, and you're going for unholy revenge. I'll go all in, man. Just just do it. And he does. Maybe he shouldn't have drank that LSD on the table, though. Yeah, that was weird. That was a bit much, yeah. So <laughs> He arms himself pretty well. He's got, uh, it looks like a couple of their spike-looking grenades. Yeah, Keltrops, I think. Yeah, yeah, it's got, and then his axe and the crossbow. And, uh, you know, it's that moment where the task is now in front of me and I've started it, but I got to make sure that I'm armed well to go forward. What's crazy about it, though, is with what's left to fight, yeah. he probably should have had those weapons to go in and take out this biker gang because he's almost over-equipped for the next round of battles where sure. he was really, even with that awesome axe, under-equipped mm-hmm. for the first round. And truthfully, he doesn't even use that that awesome axe in this first battle with the biker gang. It's Not, put in the, the cabinet, isn't it? Well, in the house, yeah, but when, when he goes outside, I think to get the leader. Oh, yeah, there's one more, yeah. You're right. They get into like a fight here around this flaming car and he lights this guy on fire and then like lops his head off. And I love that he goes and lights a cigarette on his flaming head. <laughs> it's not horror anymore though. This is turning into almost like an action film, isn't it? Yeah, and I think I'm okay with that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I think the first part was horror. I think that was about as much horror as I really needed in this film. I mean, if we just kept going with that, I mean, it'd be hard to sit through this this film, but I kind of like that it tur- it's turning in. Yeah, you- Last House on the Left is a perfect example. If the parents in the, that that film decided to take up arms and 
hunt through the woods for their daughter's rapists. It would kind of be like this film, right? Mm -hmm. Instead, in that film, the rapists come to their front door. Right. (laughs) So it's a lot easier. But it's like this revenge escapade. And I'm all for that. I mean, John Wick's a revenge escapade. Mm -hmm. Taken's a revenge escapade. Like, these, like, pseudo-action vehicles that are very popular right now. I mean, they're all about revenge, right? Yeah, they are. Wrong and uh, Writing a wrong. Yeah. And he's trying to write a really gruesome wrong. And I, I, I love that you said that because... Now that the the bikers are disposed of, it seems like the threats diminish. But I don't think all the more less important. Uh, he makes a stop at the chemist. This is the weirdest scene in the in the film to me. And I almost feel like it does, that, that's Richard Brake. I almost feel like this doesn't need to be there, but it does get him to where the cult is. They're up north, so keep keep looking for them. But it, this is a really strange Lynch scene mm-hmm. of this guy's like may as well be Bob from Twin Peaks. Yeah, and just like. He needs to. He has a tiger, and he lets the tiger go. What I like about it is that Cage enters in this room, doesn't say a word, and somehow Richard Brake is able to decipher exactly what his wants and needs are. And I can't explain it. And that sounds like horrible writing, but I kind of dug it in this scene. Yeah, you know, he, he's like, he's like, you're right. I should let the tiger go. It's not right to keep it caged up like this. They wronged you, didn't they? It's like. Uh, North. <laughs> it's like he's able to read his mind. I mean, it's the, normally I'm just like, ah, oh, this is pointless. And it, it, it does still feel just a little kind of like tedious uh, on this, this journey, but whatever. <laughs> What's all that's happening now too is as he's getting deeper into the compound that this, this religious cult is holed up at, the terrain is looking more and more post-apocalyptic. Mm, yeah. The forest yeah. that he lived in with Mandy was just kind of a normal forest, despite the way that... It was lush and green, yeah. Except for that one weird scene when that Aurora Borealis was sort of descending upon them, and I thought this was going to turn into an alien movie for a minute. Oh, yeah. Remember that? And then and then it just turned into the next scene as a sunrise the next morning. But as he gets deeper and deeper, it becomes more barren and more industrial, and I wouldn't say steampunk, I'd say more concrete jungle, post-nuclear destruction it's just sort of rubble i kind of thought fairly hellish i mean yeah. later he starts like just descending stairs and going yeah. into tunnels and i'm like wow what are the depths of the earth are we going into yeah yeah well that makes sense right i mean it, it, he's going literally into hell mm-hmm. and then if you finish up with the fire at the end then maybe you're right it was like dante a little bit then yeah, exactly. i would imagine oh yeah good yeah so i thought that was weird because this is supposed to take place in like 1984 mm-hmm. um you got to be careful sometimes with I think the aesthetic that you put on the screen sure. so that it doesn't yeah. draw you out of the story. Like mm-hmm. I've used the American hustle example a lot. Yeah. Plunging necklines to the point where that was more becoming and more enthralling than that. We have a wire. Then that's the whole you know twist in the film is I'm wearing a wire. <laughs> so dumb. <laughs> we should do that film one of these days. You have some, you have some opinions on it. Yeah. Yeah. We should do that film someday. Yeah. This is getting, like, it's already weird. So to try to maintain a relationship with the story that makes sense is is already a task. Yeah. And if you make it even more weird visually, you really have to have something crazy to keep your audience's attention. Because, you know, I could see a lot of people at some point in this going like, fuck it, I'm out. Like, yeah. this is done. Yeah. I, I could see that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'll be honest with you, mm-hmm. there were moments that took me way back to college in this film. Sure from time to time, which was at Sweet Movie, the viewing of Sweet oh, Movie. Yeah. Where it's like, this is just so weird. Yeah. It's kind of 
bullshit. Sweet movie never put it back on the rails. This gets it back into a story, but there's moments in there that, man, I was, I'll not, like I said, I'll never forget that. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's like a defining just film of what is this? And I'm, I'm with you. Like, it's one thing to do weird for weird sake in a weird postmodern type of thing. And I feel like, you know, Lynch does that from time to time. And you're just like, I guess just go with it. Like, yeah. do you remember it's that scene? I'll never forget it. Do you remember when Justin Thoreau in Mulholland Drive, like, comes home to like his lover and she's having, she's in bed with another man. And then he goes and gets his jewelry or her jewelry and like pours like pink paint all over it. Yeah. And I'm like, why? <laughs> and that's almost weird for weird sake. But you know, with Lynch, I'm, I'm willing to give him the benefit of the doubt. But I think at the end of the day with Mandy, when it's, it's doing weird imagery and camera tricks and colors and cartoons and heavy metal. I think the story's still firmly rooted in what we what we're doing, right? This right. is a revenge thing, and I, I'm not done until I kill Jeremiah Sands. As weird as this is, it never gets away too far, or gets too far that it can't get back to this story, which is yeah. a religious cult kills a man's wife, and widowed, he seeks them out to exact the revenge upon. Yeah. Um, blah, blah blah blah. Like pretty simple, high concept logline. Even though I just butchered it. That's the story. Really simple. It's a revenge plot. Yeah. If we were it's John Wick. Yeah. If we were floating away from that and getting into the weeds with some of these other just strange aspects, like spending 10 minutes with like the cartoon stuff, I'd, I'd probably tune out myself. Yeah. Like, let's get back to it, people. Let's let's get back on the, on the rails here because the rails is fairly solid. And I'm willing to just, all this is just kind of nice decoration. Um, but let's, let's not lose track of that. And I don't think, I don't think the film doesn't do that. It's. There's, there's moments, you're right, that kind of like they're almost going to pull you out and then like we kind of find our way back. Well, the animated thing something that I thought that was weird, mm -hmm. but they handled it appropriately enough because as strange as that would have been in real time, we come back to, oh, that was him having a dream. Yeah. Like he had passed out on the riverbanks or he was recovering from some beating and this is him dreaming about her. Now what's weird in that is what she looks like in those dreams. Vacuous. <laughs> Green eyes, naked, succubus. Succubus, yeah. And then in the middle of these odd other world pieces, it's almost like his version of the novel that she was reading, The Serpent Stone, mm -hmm. and playing out in his mind like that. What I thought was a bit of a miss on this, though, mm -hmm. was those dream sequences should have been maybe her as a Galactus-like element mm. eating different planets that he was on, like escaping from planet. Like they set that up. Interesting. And they never played it out. I mean, it's just, it's also weird. Yeah. It's just, they set up that big planet discussion or I shouldn't say big, small planet discussion and it was cute and it showed a sincerity or a sweetness between the two of them, as you said. I thought there was a little bit of uh, room they could have played with that. Sure. But yeah. nonetheless, it still is weird and that's the point. But- it's in his dream and it's weird. And we all have been down the road of weird dreams. Yeah. So yeah. Fever dreams, weird dreams, sick dreams. Uh, uh, yeah. yeah. Just, I'm always dreaming about, oh my God, it's the last day of school and I haven't gotten to this class all year. I, how do I take an exam? I have that one sometimes <laughs> oh, too. Oh man, it's like terrible. once a month. Oh God, really? Uh, yeah. I think it's just, that's just stress in your stress. life, right? All the things you haven't completed yet. Yep, exactly. I'd be weird if you kept like a chart on that and saw if that was happening at the end of each month or at the beginning of each month. Oh, and see. I should do that. When I wake up, though, I just like I've like kind of forgotten about it. You know what I mean? My okay. dreams don't stick with me too, too long unless they're like extraordinarily vivid. Mm. But now we, he comes to the precipice of whatever church they're building in the middle of nowhere. 
uh, wood spire church in this canyon. Mm-hmm. And so Brother Swan and the pregnant uh, member are leaving, and he traps them with the Keltrops. And then this guy, and he was the one that set fire to Mandy with with the thing. He sticks the axe in his mouth and then just like, <laughs> this was, what do you think of this? Just like in moments of the revenge, I almost want, this is sick, when the crime was so heinous, like when you kill John Wick's dog, the, that little puppy, God forbid, or you take Liam Neeson's daughter, or in this you burn your lover to life, I almost want the revenge to go past the envelope, right? Did the ends justify the means? Yeah. And this guy gets it. Just walking up and shooting the guy is far too easy. Mm-hmm. You've got to make him pay for what he did to yours. Yeah. And he stabs him. So he puts the the back the the ass end, end of the of yeah. the blade, the knife, uh, the axe into his mouth, and you can hear him start to gra- you know gurgle. And what's really troubling about that is you don't see the insertion or the penetration, but you hear kind of the giving of flesh upon the first. Mm-hmm. Um, you can almost hear when, when it pops, right? Oh, and then and then he goes a little bit deeper, and then the third one, so it's like, and then, and then, and so and it's just like a fountain at that point. That's a bad way to die, and as you said, the revenge has been exacted because that so. matches this the sleeping bag burning alive bit. Yeah, not really, but it's it's close. It was like a Jason Voorhees kill over there, lighting someone on fire in a mm-hmm. sleeping bag. Yep. Uh, and this this guy's just a follower. He's a he's just a a follower. He's not a leader. He just listens to orders. So we get to the compound finally, and now we got like the what I imagine would be the internal muscle or that other guy, both of them, the guy that looked weird. Yeah. He, he takes the axe right to the face, and then this other guy, the the muscle who I guess is chopping the wood for the foundation of the church. Sure. Cage comes up with him with a chainsaw, and you kind of think, oh, wow, he knows his way around a chainsaw because he does this for a living. Mm-hmm. So he gets this little baby chainsaw, and then this guy whips out, like, a four-foot chainsaw. Yeah, huge. <laughs> and at that point, you're just like, yeah, like that's we're going there. Like, this, this guy's going to have this monumental weapon. And it's like they get in, like, a sword fight with chainsaws, and at the, uh, I'm just kind of going with it. It's yeah. just like, this is kind of cool. Yeah. <laughs> Um, he uses the small chainsaw pretty effectively. Mm-hmm. And if you think about it, the, choreogra- the, the choreography of a fight yeah. is always a fun thing probably in film to watch. Yeah. Chainsaws is a pretty elaborate dance, but the chainsaw that the bad guy is wielding, like you said, has a four-foot-long blade on it. And so Cage does a pretty good job of taking advantage of the long, stro- like the long strokes that guy would sure. have to make. Mm-hmm. and The weight of swinging that around yeah. yeah it'd be like if you swung this really really heavy bat and the pitcher got the ball back and quick pitched you before you could get the bat back on your shoulders mm-hmm. and he uses that little chainsaw to kind of rip the dude to shreds and then i don't know if i love this kill though oh when he lassoed him with the... i don't know if i buy that yeah so there's just a chain around and he takes his chain and he lassos the guy around the throat and pulls him to the ground on top of the long chainsaw, mm-hmm. and then we watch that guy make a blood angel in the sand with um, his arms flailing about. Yeah. That's a terrible way to go. Don't get me wrong. Yeah, it's also awful. It's also that wouldn't work. Yeah, it wouldn't. He would just roll off of it. So yeah. I kind of wish he maybe had impaled him, mm-hmm. or yeah. it, 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 we're talking about like little minor petty things no, that's here. Okay, but if we're going there, let's go ahead and go all the way sure, there. Yeah. What do you think? Do you like that fight? I overall? love. I love the fight. I mean, it's just. When he pulls that out, 
from the side of the wood there and you're just you're just like yeah let's do it and and they do it and cage like blocks it because he can't get his started it's like out of gas and so he's blocking and ducking and parrying and then when he gets it going and he's fairly proficient with it mm-hmm. the advantageous of the long chainsaw would be it's a long blade so if like i just swipe at you I, like you can hit any part of that four feet but then it's a bitch to move right that yeah. thing's got to be 150 pounds maybe right <laughs> so there is that uh yeah i thought it was it was unique and yeah may as well this kind of final sword fight before we go into the recesses of this church mm-hmm. and this church is something else i mean it's very symmetrical uh it's lit like really spookily and then when this is very david lynchian when he's visiting mm-hmm. laura palmer on the other side in the red room oh yeah didn't it feel like that it to did, you? Yeah. Especially when you said geometric, I thought, yeah, boy, he's right on with that. With the shapes and the the, the, the flooring, yeah. the, the curtains, and he just keeps ascending and just keeps going. And so me, the viewer, is like, man, where did they build this church? Or what what did they find that they decided to build the church on, these tunnels? Mm-hmm. Going to hell, man. I mean, this isn't, the, the, the line between religion is so skewed at this point, and Jeremiah thinks he's serving a higher power, but he's really in the recesses of hell, mm-hmm. doing hellish things to people. Uh, he runs into the old woman. This is when the old woman says she's the most sensitive man. Oh, I, yeah, yeah, I right. chuckled just because. Good to know you're a sensitive lover. We're <sighs> glad to hear that. That's a saving grace. Yeah. Ugh, to that. All she needs to be is touched, and she has an orgasm, I imagine. Lucky her. Uh, and then he's doing God knows what in this final uh uh, den pit. yeah this pit yeah that's exactly what it looks like and he comes in he throws the woman's head and he's like you're the last one buddy and so it's like one final plea and he's like you kneel before me and you think you're so pious and this and that but i see i serve a higher power and i don't kneel you kneel before me and i kind of like this i mean nicholas cage's voice at this point is almost like become other world almost like galactus mm-hmm and then when he tells him, he gets Jeremiah by the head, and Jeremiah's like, I'll suck your dick. Like, is that what you want? Like, I, 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 we don't need to do this. And he says, I'm your God now. Almost like Freddy Krueger, right? And just, I don't know if this is physically possible, but Nicolas Cage is on a lot of drugs and pain meds probably at this point. Dude, he crushes this guy's head in. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what did you think of that? Uh, is that a just death for our guy? I think so. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, that's fine. It's a very strange dance they're doing at the end. I mean, just this tit for tat. The truth is that guy wouldn't have much of a chance against no. Red. He's no. kind of a wuss. Mm-hmm. And uh, we've already known that because his wife laughed at him. Um, I was sort of surprised, though, when he walked into the pit, he wasn't engaged in some sort of naked weirdness. Um, he's got like a loincloth on, so he's not entirely clothed. But um, It's like a Jesus uh, yeah. shorts. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> That's uh, odd. But yeah, squishing his head is a good way to go and uh, probably felt pretty good to Nick Cage. So then he sets fire to uh, Jeremiah, the woman's head, the whole church, and just kind of leaves and very just that it should be fire. If He claimed that there was a, a crazy line. Uh, cleansing when, power of fire. Yeah. Witness the cleansing power of fire. And I think it was the uh, swan yep. that said this was the... Darker the whore, the brighter the flame. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's brutal. I mean, just, just to say that in front of Red, and of course that's going to fuel his fire even more, but just that it happens this way. And so then the film wraps up with kind of like a flashback of, it's very indescript, but I, th- I imagine it's the first time Red met Mandy uh, at some pub or bar or wherever, and he's just, that radiant light, the way they shoot it is, 
I mean, he gets it. He almost had, kind of has the same moment that Jeremiah has the first time he sees her, too. I mean, it's just like something about this woman is just like locks into these two men. Uh, and then so then they cut back to him in the car, a bloodied mess at this point. I mean, he's had blood in his mouth all over his He's squirting blood everywhere. Mm-hmm. And this, I think, is fairly decent way to end the film. I mean, he looks in the passenger seat and she's sitting there with him, right? Yep. I mean, there's some sort of solace or happiness there. And when they cut back to Cage, I mean, dude, he's got a Cage grin on. It's just like, that's madness, right? So then I ask you, because he drives off into the night, what does Red do after this? Hmm. Does Red die? Does, I don't know if he's killing himself or what, but like, does Red have a life after this? It's just, at this point, he's gone about as far as like a human being could possibly go, what they're willing to put themselves through. Yeah, I don't know. Um, Best guess. Just based on kind of the last I would shots. say maybe that car's going over a cliff or into something. I think he's probably ready to be done at mm-hmm. this point. Yeah. What, are you going to go back to Lumberjack in the woods? Yeah. No. How's that normal after this? Right. Yeah. And I think, truth be told, I think you miss you miss your girls. So Strange that it ends on this moment of sweetness between the two of them. And then as it flashes back from the memory into real time. He's still in the car, obviously with not her having with her not being in the passenger seat because she's dead, but he's covered in caked in blood and dirt and grime. Um, you know, the things you would go through for love, I guess is maybe the moral of the story. It's just such a fucking weirdly executed way to (laughs) get that moral across. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Um, but that's the end of the film. We cut to black. We have very somber credits. And yeah, you've gone through an experience at that point. One of the reasons I did want to want to pick the film. But a yeah. couple questions for you. What was your favorite tasting note? Favorite scene sequence of Mandy? Oh, man. It might have been... Hmm. It might have been the screaming sequence when he gets the vodka bottle. Mm. It's really the only time we see kind of an emotional outburst from him. Mm-hmm. He's going to go into vengeance guy here. And as that goes from, I think, anger to frustration to sadness to pain, like I see he, it's weird to see him run that gamut of emotions through yelling. But I could, each one of those yells feels different to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, Nicholas Cage, we've made some fun on, of him on the podcast for his yelling. Mm-hmm. He's pretty good at it in this scene. And I think that's, that's a big moment. Let me ask you this real quick. Do mm. you think they, because we talked about it with unbearable weight of like, unleash the cage, man, like let him do his thing. And then last week we kind of saw a variation of that. What was your use of cage in this film? Do you think it was appropriate? Because I could see this film, if they tap a little too heavy into the cagey, caginess, that this almost becomes a comedy in the second half. Yeah. And I think you still want it to be a grim revenge epic. I think they get just enough out of him. I think that's very well said. Yeah. If he goes full cage in this, it becomes very odd B-movie to absurd nonsense. Mm-hmm. It toes the line a couple places, like you yep. said, but maybe to his credit, where he's able to reel it in a little bit and keep this from going so far gone that we start jumping sharks and just want to look for, we're looking for the door. Great choice. Um, that's a good catch, Jesse. I think it, you're right there. That's, yeah. a, that's a good catch. Yeah, maybe that's, you know, the director, you know, kind of understanding, like, who they're working with as well. Uh, I think I'm going to go with uh, the forging of his weapon. I mean, if that's the call to action moment of the final pieces in place, we had the cleansing moment, the uh, 
the settling in of our emotions. We have knowledge now on the enemy. Now we have the blade to go defeat the enemy. Like that's pretty cool. And I love that the type that the Mandy, if that's supposed to be, I don't know if that's just supposed to be the section of the movie that this is about, or if that's the title card of the film coming in yeah. an hour in. Yeah. That's wild. That is. So I'm going to go with that. Oh man. What are we going to pick for the oh my God! moment of Mandy? It's got to be that sleeping bag bit. Yeah. Quite the, shocking. And the way he's sort of crucified having to watch it. It's There's, there's a couple other ones too, but um, I think I'm going to go with that sleeping bag, her being burned alive. It's a good choice. I kind of thought, you know, maybe the wasp drug trip yeah, with Jeremiah. Too. I mean, that's some weird filmmaking for mm-hmm. 10, 15 minutes. Mm-hmm. I think I'm going to have to go with the arrival of the, the biker gang. Just because, you know, the film's on its way, and then when Jeremiah says, you have the horn of a Braxis, don't you? And I'm like, where are we going? <laughs> and then that shows up, and you're like, oh, what is this? Yeah. <laughs> is this, where did those guys come from hell? Yeah. Like, what, where are we going? And then it settles into itself uh, nicely, and so you can kind of, you know, alleviate the, the supernatural aspects of the film, but... That's a crazy moment. I mean, you think you're watching one movie, and then you're like, oh, I think I'm watching a completely totally different, different thing. different movie, yeah. Uh, I, I will quote, um, so Shane, you know Shane. Yep. He told me about this movie when it came out. I, I, I think him and his then-girlfriend went to go see it. And it, it kind of like you talked about, like, you know, I can imagine people walking out of this movie. They had that conversation, like, 25 minutes, and were like, let's bail, man. Like, what is going on here? What's this? And then I, it's the, 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 the biker gang showed up, and they're like, hmm. Maybe we should stick around and see what's going to play out. So yeah. it's kind of an interesting hook element of it's almost so weird. You got to need to see the rest of it play out to know what's going to happen. So to say that you have to watch this film, maybe in special company with someone who's film tolerant sounds so elitist and snobby, but it's kind of true. And it doesn't necessarily ring as a solid endorsement to the film. I mean, yeah, that is, there is that case of, yeah, it's hard to recommend. So yeah, yeah. I'm surprised Shane would take a date to that film. <laughs> Unless they were already together. And he, they were that, already safe. They were together, so it was just, yeah, when he told me about it. But, but then he hooked me, right? He tells me that, and I'm like, well, I got to see that movie. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I got to see what that's all about. Yeah. Um, who's the master distiller on Mandy? Well, there's not a lot to choose from, really. Yeah. Um, it's going to probably either be the director or Cage. I'm going to give it to Cage because I think and I would have said the director until about 10 minutes ago, but I think he really hit something on the head, Jesse. Mm-hmm. If Cage takes this too far, then he destroys his own film. Yeah. And he's able to go far enough to not destroy his own film. Cause I don't feel that this director yeah. has got his fingerprints on Nick Cage and has those reins under control and can sure. keep this dude from caging out. Yeah. Do you, but do you, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I don't know the guy, but it just, Nick Cage is a handful, mm-hmm. but that's what makes him. If you like his work, good which for some reason he seemed to not want to do any of that in, in Massive Talent, which I still can't I can't process I know, that, that's the, why that movie came across as subtly as it did. That's the enigma of this cast, right? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm gonna give it to I'm gonna give it to Cage. Okay. I will give it to Panos Cosmatos. I, he hasn't made a movie since this one, so I don't know mm. what he's working on that's gonna be weird and strange, I imagine. I've seen his first film, it's called Beyond the Black Rainbow. And it, it it's it's Almost unwatchable. It's just, it dips too far into that weirdness pool where you just can't even follow the plot. And then that's where I check out. Yeah. 
But this is kind of another beast altogether. So the palette, the color palette, the 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 effects you're using, the level of violence, uh, this revenge story. I mean, there's a lot that has to be juggled here. And I like that he's willing to take it in weird, strange places because we've seen revenge stories. I mean, the Bible has revenge stories. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it's something that's so ingrained with us that his take on it is something so otherworldly yet grounded still mm-hmm. in a weird, strange way. Mm. And any other director, I think, kind of tackling that in, in an artful kind of way could really make a very unappealing film well that said. would make people want to walk out. Um, but here, I'm fairly comfortable. I feel like I'm in good hands. This in Ari Aster's hands is going to be another strange, uncomfortable, solemn vehicle. I don't know if it's going to look as beautiful, though. I mean, I think this cult, this whatever neon colors going on here is visually appealing to the eye are you saying if Ari Aster did this film it would not be no I think it would probably be pretty good but it would probably be even more grim and psychotic (sighs) than this is yeah I'm just making sure I understand yes therapy afterwards yeah so I think the colors the the dip into humor the the caginess of it I think makes it a little more accessible Mm -hmm. even though it's gonna be hard to recommend yeah (laughs) how are you gonna rate and grade Mandy we have rock cut well call single barrel and top shelf where are you going for this one? The movie's not terrible. Mm-hmm. But I can't say it's really good either. So this is a weird rating. This is the the highest rating of this I could ever give. Okay. It's really good rock gut. Okay. But that being said, it's still rock gut. Yeah. Um, I don't even know if I'm smart enough this morning to come up with like what that would be liquor wise to sort of give you a measuring stick on how I mean this. I I don't ever, ever want to see this film again. I know a lot of people that feel that way. And I have to tell you, if it hadn't been for the show, I might have turned it off. Yeah. I'm glad that I didn't. Yeah. Sort of. And it was an interesting experience, but I'm putting myself in check because as I'm getting on in years a little bit, and I'm the, turning into a little bit of the get-off-my-lawn kid guy. <laughs> you know, have, if I'd seen this maybe a decade earlier, I probably would have a different take on it. Mm-hmm. I can't even say it's really, really well-acted. It's okay-acted. Yeah. Um, it's, yeah, it's, it's good, it's good rock cut. This is a B-film, but he made a lot of B-films. Mm-hmm. Here's the question that I can't square in my mind. Okay. I know Nicolas Cage had a lot of financial issues. And that led him to this crazy period for the last decade-ish of taking literally anything that came across his desk. And I don't mean in a Matt Damon or Jimmy Stewart kind of way. Sure. A lot of trash. He passed on some roles that had to have been mainstream things to do starring roles like this. Mm -hmm. The Edward G. Robinson effect in Double Indemnity. I don't know what compelled him to make this film unless there were just no offers on the table. But do we really think that there were no, and I mean no offers on the table for Nicolas Cage? I don't think there were no offers. I think the offers were slim and maybe unappealing where, you know, I kind of think of Cage and McConaughey being kind of like in a very interesting boat resurgence wise. Whereas, you know, Cage came, saw, conquered, burnt out, and then did shit and McConaughey kind of did the same thing, and then romantic comedies, and then McConaughey got to come back with like stuff like Mud 
and Dallas Buyers Club. True Detective. And True Detective. And, you know, Cage is kind of in that same path, but he's just getting films like Mandy and Colorado Space and just like we're just off the beaten path vehicles. But that 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 feels like Cage, right? I mean, that doesn't feel like McConaughey. Okay, so that's a really good example, Jesse. Yeah. If Killer Joe is what started people yeah. looking at McGonaghy as, hey, maybe he wasn't just the opposite of Kate Hudson in 15 different romantic comedies, mm-hmm. which let's be honest about, mm-hmm. is a fine career to carve out in Hollywood as well. Absolutely. Then it seems like Cage at this same period, 2018, to even through right now, is searching out that that Killer Joe to be followed up by by Dallas Buyers Club. Let me give you one more piece on this. Mm-hmm. I haven't seen it yet, but from everything I've read, and you've seen it, mm-hmm. Pig, I think, is Killer Joe. Mm-hmm. Massive talent should have been um, Mud. Yeah. Like, in terms of sure. strong, solid film to resurrect a career. Yeah. This was, yeah. I, I, I want to know when he chose this film, what else his agent gave him? Yeah. It could have been. I don't know if he wanted to work with the director, but then he doesn't have a lot of credits to his name. Like, what was appealing to it? That was like, yeah, let me do it. Especially as as Nick Cage method is, his own method is himself. Mm-hmm. His method is not this film. Yeah. Is it? Or is it? I mean, it has the Cage, Quosha, weirdness vibe to it, so I'll, I'll give him that, but... If you want him, but then, but then you're right. I mean, it's a delicate balance. If you give him that full access to just go all out, it's almost unwatchable as something like this. So I don't know. You got to be careful with him. I mean, perplexing, perplexing. Yeah. But we knew that coming into this, right? Well, you've warned me. Yeah. So, well, no, just in this cage cask, right? Oh, this cask. Perplexing individual choices. And, And, uh, you know, kind of frustrating and perplexing, kind of like massive talent. Sure. That's for everybody out there. That's I wanted to see that movie when I saw the trailer and I said, let's do massive talent. And Jesse was like, maybe we can build a cask around cage. And we Mm -hmm. went back and forth on what the selections would be for the very reasons that you're hearing us go through right now. Massive talent was a massive disappointment on what could have been (laughs) a weird film about him playing himself. Yeah. And he's done that well with like adaptation is kind of that movie Mm -hmm. being John Malkovich laid out that sort of plan. Sure. And somehow of all the films that we've done, that's the most subtle, and certainly compared to this, that's a, a, a silly comment. An understatement. <laughs> How did he go from this and from what I've heard about Pig to massive talent? Yeah. I, I want to I I be in his, his agent meeting and see what the discussions are the two of them have. I think there's a financial component to it, too. We didn't discuss this a lot, but I think he's massively in debt. Oh, so, he's massively in debt. So I think he does, whether there's a lot of offers, I don't know if he has a lot of choice of, I have to do this film, right? I mean, he does a lot of those straight to DVD that yeah. Bruce Willis did before his retirement from yeah. due to health reasons. Bruce Willis was churning out, I think last year, he turned out like 10, 11 movies straight to DVD and they're like all terrible. And because they make them, they go show up for like two days on set, they get $500,000 and that's all they're committed to. Cage does a lot of that stuff too. So I think I'm a little more shocked that he'll do something like this that feels a little more prestige than like that garbage because that's just shit. I'm going to get your rating one second, but I want to throw one more thing at you. Did you see that odd named producer that I saw and and who produced this film? Elijah Elijah Wood? Wood? (laughs) Is that that Elijah Wood? It is, yeah. What in the hell? Yeah. 
Elijah Wood's into now that post Lord of the Rings and like that guy's like set for life, right? Money wise. He's into like like horror films, like horror, obscure, B, retro stuff. Like that's like kind of like his vibe. I mean, he did a remake of the Joe Spinelli Maniac that is supposed to be pretty good. I've never seen it, but interesting producer, right? <laughs> Very. Did you look up the budget on this? Uh, it was it was fairly cheap here. Let me. I, I have it. It can't be more than seven, right? Yeah. Uh, oh, let me get into my rating yeah, here. Yeah. Way off track. Sorry. Uh, no, you're good. Um. Interesting. Yeah, this is this is a hard film to to categorize. Uh, Six million dollars. Yeah, I want to go single barrel. And wow, it's only because God, I've never. I've, there's very few films I've ever seen like this. Before. I can I can see that though. I'm, I'm saying wow because I I kind of agree with you. Yeah, I mean, just the way it's presented, the way it's executed. I mean, several times when watching this, especially if you're not as seasoned a film goers. I mean. Matt's seen sweet movie. I mean, Matt knows a weird film. Oh. And man, I've seen some crazy shit, foreign stuff too. And I, I know how weird it can get. This feels weird, but still accessible at, at, at times, which I think is important. Yeah. But man, this ain't for everybody. I mean, you put this on for a movie night with your buddies. And if you don't know your friends well, oh man, it's it's not going to go well. Never hear the end of it. Yeah, you'll never, you're like, oh, wait, don't let him pick the movie. Wait, you pick Mandy. Uh, so you got to be careful with who you show this to. But I think that's my purpose now with this film is. My purpose is now to show this to people and just to see what do you think about this? Like, how does this register on a barometer film watching for you? And that's kind of what I wanted to do with you. Just like, how do you feel about this and where it's going, how it's going and stuff. And got a good gauge on you of just through this episode and watching it with you. So I can see why you come up with single barrel. And what I would say is you can have single barrel bourbon or Mm -hmm. single barrel that still isn't as, as great as maybe just a nice call. Sure. Do you know what I mean? You and I have gone back and forth off mic a lot about how we don't care particularly for four roses. Oh, yeah. I don't think that's good bourbon. I think it's Broody, pretty, yeah, it's, it's kind of terrible. Yeah. You can have a single barrel bottle of four roses, and I probably would take a sip and pass mm-hmm. and maybe trade it in and probably rather be more content to have just blackjack, plain mm-hmm. blackjack. Yeah. Even neat. <laughs> <Ugh>. <laughs> Lighter yeah. fluid. Oh, gosh. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. And in some ways, I think this film fits in both of those two categories equally well absolutely yeah it's crazy yeah. it's rock gut b movie schlock but so executed originally and uniquely done in a way you've never seen before yeah exactly yeah that's yeah, it's a very perplexing thing what do you think of this and then we'll get to our nightcap just mm-hmm. just a, a pondering thought if you want to be a well-rounded film viewer i mean sure you can go see what's in the theater and if that's what you want amen to you i mean that's you watch film for entertainment there's nothing wrong with that but if you want the deep dives, if you want to watch black and white films, if you want to watch silent films, if you want to see foreign stuff, genre stuff, don't you feel like even when something like this comes up, you kind of need to take the plunge if you want to like be well-rounded, right? I mean, you don't know until you know. Yeah. And I've, I found that out a lot, both good and bad. Yes. Uh, you kind of need to take the plunge sometimes. It yeah. might, might be unpleasant, but you, you might be shocked about like, you might have a good time too. So mm-hmm. uh, I don't like people to say, oh, I'll never watch that because it just doesn't appeal to me. Well, like, well, how do you know? Right. How do you know you might not like that? You and I, we're not the demographic for the stars born. We love that movie. Mm-hmm. So you don't know sometimes. So that's my, my pulpit. I'll, I will get off my Jeremiah sand uh-huh. uh, preaching box and say, just 
do it. Dive all in. Exactly. Just dive on in. All right. Let's wrap this up with a nightcap. Goblin could have been Goblin. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I didn't even mention the score. The score is amazing. Johan Johansson, synthy eighties, new wave, prog rock a little mm-hmm. bit. Mm-hmm. I mean, King King Crimson does the song at the beginning, and that they were like a pseudo prog rock, like yes, English prog rock band. So yeah, that score rocks. And it was it was Johan Johansson's last score before he died. So mm. R.I.P. My nightcap question to you. So. We've done an actor's cast before. We did Schwarzenegger. That was a blast. We did Cage. This has been completely as it should go. We did Cage right. I mean, we did this pseudo self-referential film. We did the prestige acting Cage vehicle. We kind of had to do a weird one, right? Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. I, I feel like we did him pretty good. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> so in the future, we got it. We're gonna we're gonna do more actor directors. I love when we do the director's cast. Those are those are my favorite. Uh, but we'll do another actor's cast. So I'm giving you full creative control. Pitch the actor and give me the three films we'll do in that cast. Joaquin Phoenix. Okay. And the three films I want to do are. Oh God, it's slipping. What's the the noir one that he just did? That was not the most recent one. That was not good. Um. Oh come on. Oh, Inherent Vice. Okay. Inher- oh my. In- God. Inherent Vice. <laughs> To Die For. Ooh. And Walk the Line. Ooh, that's a good cast. Dude, you and I will just shred Inherent Vice. Mm-hmm. It's a PTA disaster. Mm-hmm. But To Die For, oh man, that's that's so off the beaten path too. Mm-hmm. Any reasoning for those three particular films? No Gladiator, Signs? Like, why those ones? Um, just give me your vibe. I love To Die For. Mm-hmm. And that's a movie that I feel like in some ways is similar to Before the Devil Knows You're Dead and Prisoners. Like a lot of people miss those films and it was our job to sort of say, hey, you might want to see these. And that's young him. Yeah. Uh, Inherent Vice just because it gets back to that sort of frustrating discussion that we love to have about film noir about every six months. And Walk the Line because I think of all of the acting that he does, his most difficult task is being able to Act and sing and make me believe he's Johnny Cash. That is no easy feat. I think that's his best acting role. It ha- well, yeah. It's, sure. He's really great in that. He's, okay. he's, I like his stuff better than Johnny Cash doing his own stuff. Sure. Ooh, people are like uh, furious yeah. right now. I know, <laughs> but it's burning mad on the Mandy Pyre. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that's my three. Great choice. Good. Thanks. All right. Yours. I think you're going to love mine. I'm sure. Okay. So I, I kind of thought about, you know, just so many actors. You know, I love Kurt Russell and I, we love Jimmy Stewart, but, you know, we've covered some of their films already before. So I was like, who haven't we done? Okay. The actor, Vince Vaughn. Oh, God. Yeah. The three films. And I think this is a wide gamut of his filmography. Oh, you have a chance to hit a fucking home run right here, man. Okay. Swingers. Oh. Dodgeball. Oh. And then one I don't think you've seen, but it's very much in the Mandy reinventing the actor. It's called Brawl, Brawl in Cell Block 99. Mm. And it's Vince Vaughn like you've never seen before. Mm. Isn't that right? That's, Love it. that's the right amount of Vaughn, right? I mean, that's like what made him, what he was known for, and then the reinvention of the Vaughn. I love that. Any consideration to Clay Pigeons? I, we could, I mean, I, I'm open to just switching things in and out. 
Oh man, so that, that's a good cask, Jesse. You're right. I'll give it to you that. That's a good one. And I picked Dodgeball because it's fun. It's so stupid. It's maybe one of the funniest movies I've ever seen in my high life. High concept gold. <laughs> high concept genius. Yeah. ESPN 8 de Ocho. The Ocho. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so whenever we decide to do these casts, be later this year, next year, whenever, but we got it, right? Yeah. yeah. Those those will be good. Uh, People any, tell me I look like Vince Vaughn. Yeah, I, yeah, I get a little of that. Not so much anymore, but I used to hear it a lot. I get a little of that, yeah. yeah. Any honorable mentions or anyone else that floated through just to give a tease? Well, yeah, I mean, there's a couple of the obvious ones. You know I want to do a Grant one specifically mm. one day. Um, but I'd like to do... As crazy as this may sound, I'd like to do a Shirley MacLaine one one day or maybe a Sissy SpaceX one one day. Well, Shirley MacLaine would give us access to the apartment, which would be great. Yep. Um, we can get into some other uh, other stuff there. That, that'd be good. Jack Lemmon is a possibility, too, that uh, to bring up the apartment. That would be a good one. Honorable mentions. Go ahead. Give me a couple. Uh, I just kind of thought just because we've never talked about it, like, I don't know, like a Tom Hanks cast. Oh, yeah, good. Yeah. And that, you know comedy like the money pit or the burbs to like cerebral drama to like prestige like Mm -hmm. saving private ryan like Mm -hmm. i kind of tried to find like eras of like much like cage like they've hit like different strides in different time pieces um this is an honorable mention but maybe i'm just queuing up next week for us but a tom cruise cast would be fairly interesting to the point where um i don't know if you got this preview when you saw next week's film but did you get the mission impossible preview I don't know if you want to do this. This is mildly intriguing to me, but if you wanted to do a Rocky thing and cover all the Mission Impossibles, that would kind of intrigue me a little bit. Yeah, that could be good. Because those are like seven very different movies. You got John Woo, you got Brian De Palma, you got J.J. Abrams, mm-hmm. and then Christopher McQuarrie, and then you got the crew just doing the craziest shit in those movies, right? Yeah. And Spy, I think done mostly pretty well. Yeah, good action. Think about it. That movie doesn't come out until next summer, so think about what we could maybe do with that. Build something around that. Yeah. You know, one thing that that series succeeds at really well is the rest of the team and who they round yeah. out to be on there. The team element, yep. Simon Pegg, Rebecca Ferguson, Bing Rames. Bing Rames um, what's his name? Uh, Baldwin. Stephen Baldwin. Well, no, no, that one's Alec Baldwin. But the, the team changes all the time, too. I mean, at, at one point, you know, Emilio Estevez was in the original uh, you got John Renault in the original. Mm-hmm. Uh, the team also include like uh, Jonathan Reese Myers at one point mm-hmm. and uh, Paula Patton. Yeah, yeah, it's like a revolving team. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, good. That would be fun. My dad hates Tom Cruise. Uh, we had a conversation about that a few weeks back. So really, <laughs> he just can't stand it. I don't know what it is. But mm-hmm. next week's film, starring Tom Cruise, right? Mm-hmm. Top Gun, colon, Maverick. Uh, just got released yesterday. Um, you've already seen it, you lucky bastard. Yeah. Um, we're going to cover it next week. I'm excited to talk about this. I did try to dig into this because I was like, my God, it's been, what, 34 years since the original? Is that the longest gap since a sequel? And mm. it's not. It's dang near close to the top. The best I could find was... Mary Poppins to Mary Poppins Returns with Emily Blunt. Oh. 56 years. Ooh. So I consider, this is a hell of a long wait to get a sequel. Yeah. So without spoiling, without saying anything, do you want to just say anything to the audience about this film? But don't give your opinion about it. <laughs> this is a must-see. Okay. Everybody, this is an absolute must-see. 
I think one of the conversations we're going to have next week is around the importance of summer tent pole financial viability because Clearly, this is a four tent pole film. That mm-hmm. means that it meets all the quadrants for people to go see. Yeah. Kids, families, uh, 18, 35-year-old males and females. Yep. Um, and I think, I've looked at the numbers, it's, it's going to slay. I'm, I'm, it's going to slay. And I think that the other interesting component in that that I'd like to discuss is, as this is sort of a Gen X staple mm. in what we grew up watching, there's a lot of us that are reintroducing the film to our young ones now. Yeah. And it's interesting to hear them say what they say. Cause I can tell you when I went to the theater, it was a very interesting demographic to my immediate right. were like a couple of kids by kids. I mean like 17, 18 years old. And then to one row up into my left was a couple that had to be in their eighties. Wow. Yeah, I'm excited. I'm really excited to see it. You know, I was go back and listen to our original Top Gun episode. I was very high on that. Uh, you not may, so much. Maybe call or well at best. <laughs> so Don't, yeah, uh, go listen to that one so you can preface us going into this long-awaited sequel. So and then yeah, we're right in the summer movie season. We're gonna follow that up with another gigantic movie that I don't know might be a crazy mixed bag. So yeah, yeah, <laughs> excellent to you, Matt. To you, Jesse. Cheers. Cheers. I hope you had a good time watching Mandy with me this morning and just doing the cage cask uh we will be back same time same channel next week with you i gotta get going i'm gonna go cook up some mac and cheese man there better not be a goblin puking (laughs) cheese all over me if it is he's gonna you're gonna help me clean it up kids will love it all right we'll see you all next week have a good week everybody we'll see you in the dark thank you for listening to rye smile films be sure to subscribe to us on apple podcasts spotify podbean stitcher tune in or if you listen to podcasts. And be sure to leave us a rating and a review while you're there. It really helps out the show. And for Rye Smile Films merchandise, go to tpublic.com. Mandy is property of RLJE Films, Spectre Vision, U Media, and XYZ Films. And no copyright infringement is intended. Until next time, cheers. God's gift in my heart, not you, so you kneel before me, mother of